Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, the fight against global warming. A recent Supreme Court ruling calls into question the mechanisms that the federal government was trying to use to try to limit carbon emissions in America. And now the question is, what's the way forward for the fight we should all be engaged in to try to limit global warming and carbon emissions? To try to walk us through what this ruling means and where we go from here, we're very happy to have Christy Goldfuss, who is Senior Vice President of Energy and Environmental Policy at the Center for American Progress, one of the tip-top think tanks in Washington, D.C. Christy, thanks so much for joining us. Matt, thank you for having me, especially on this incredibly important topic. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and we really appreciate your expertise walking us through this because there's been a lot of reaction to the ruling, and a lot of it was sort of hyperbolic, maybe rightfully so, because the topic, the underlying topic itself, as you note, is so important. So I want to, I do want to get to the particulars of the case and the way forward, but just to set the table for our listeners a little bit. Could you tell us a little bit more, kind of at baseline, about how we've regulated what goes into the air in this country in, in recent decades? It, it falls under the Clean Air Act, is that right? That's right. And there's a suite of what we frequently refer to as bedrock environmental laws that all were passed in the late 70s, uh, sorry, late 60s and early 70s. And that's where you get the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, one of my favorites, the National Environmental Policy Act, and the Clean Air Act falls in that category. And it really was designed to allow us to have both a clean environment and a thriving economy. I mean, it's always been the basis of how we look at environmental law, that it is not um, a matter of sacrificing one or the other. And so the Clean Air Act does give the Environmental Protection Agency very broad authority on how to protect the environment, but it is always in consideration of how to balance the economic impacts of whatever their regulatory agenda is along with the environmental benefits. So just broadly speaking, uh, there are many different ways and many different tools that EPA has used in the past. Uh, this particular statute that um, they were using, or not statute, this particular part of the law that they were using for the Clean Power Plan is what was called into question in the recent Supreme Court case. And just to be very clear, because many of our listeners were not born in the late 60s and early 70s, these were laws, these bedrock environmental laws were not partisan at the time. Sometimes people view this as an inherently partisan issue because nowadays if you're if you're pushing for environmental regulation or you're concerned about global warming you tend to be a democrat but that wasn't the case in the late 60s and early 70s these were these were president nixon's initiatives that's right. largely that's right and listening to president nixon talk about why he was signing the clean air act into law you kind of have to adjust your brain given our current politics to realize that you're matching that voice with a Republican president at that time. But it really was kind of core to Rep Republican values that we could conserve the environment. And that's really only changed in uh, the past several years and become hyperbolic in the in more recent time for sure. And 
there obviously the science that established that carbon emissions are a problem that that human caused carbon emissions are an especial problem and an actual an accelerant of what are otherwise natural processes that this was something we needed to be worried about as a species obviously that science does go back it even goes before right. this this area of this time of of regulation but it wasn't really a major part of the policy conversation until recent decades. So the Clean Air Act wasn't particularly focused on carbon, is really my point. It was focused on other pollutants, other, and it's it's been actually quite successful as a piece of regulation. It, it's been used to uh, regulate particulates that go into the atmosphere, soot and mm-hmm. and socks and knocks and all mm-hmm. these other um, you know things we don't want to be breathing in. Is is that is that the case that prior to the time where our number one air pollution concern was carbon, you know, through carbon dioxide emissions, methane emissions? Prior to that, has this been a successful law? Absolutely. It's been one of the most effective, certainly in terms of the environmental laws that we have in the books, because they've been able to go after specific pollution, specific pollutants, as you said. And um, those have been tested over time through the courts, whether you're talking about particulate matter, which is so tied to asthma, or you're looking at uh, any of the other more traditional pollution areas. The Clean Air Act has just had an incredible impact in cleaning up the air. I mean, if you think about all the pictures you used to see of um, LA, for example, with all the smog that was in the air. And and more recently, pictures that we've seen in China, Beijing, an incredible amount of pollution from coal-fired power plants. It is very evident why we need to have pollution controls in place when the evidence of that pollution is staring you right in the face. I think it is a much more difficult conversation when you're talking about carbon dioxide because it is a global problem. It is something uh, that is much harder for humanity to see on its own. So having the ability to track it and trace it uh, is incredibly important. And it's hard, I I know this is what the Supreme Court was um, looking at, but it's hard to say that given where the science is now that you wouldn't recognize the Clean Air Act as being the tool that you could use to regulate carbon emissions. It's a really interesting point you raised, and I hadn't even really previously thought about it that way, that when it comes to regulating the the soot going into the air, it's a problem that's far more localized because the the fallout, so to speak, is much more contained. You know, if it's if it's coming from America, it's probably landing in America Mm -hmm. and you the the results really are literally in your face. Anyone who's visited Beijing, which I did in, in 2008 and breathed the air for just a moment, would come back and tell you, I'm a fan of the Clean Air Act. But <laughs> right. it is a different, it is a different story for carbon, which really is, as you say, a global problem. What has been the federal government's approach in recent decades as we've had this growing scientific uh, awareness and uh, you know, kind of a consistent understanding that that this is this is the the cataclysmic issue of our times. What has the federal government's approach been to trying to reduce carbon emissions? 
Well, for starters, and I, I was um, the managing director of the Council on Environmental Quality during the Obama administration, so I'm familiar with all the different approaches that President Obama took. But for starters, it is true that the government needs more authority to address climate change. And so President Obama, like President Biden is doing now, tried to work with Congress to move through legislation that really would have put a cap on the amount of carbon emissions. I, I have very painful memories of the cap and trade bill. Yes, yes. Waxman, Markey, cap and trade. Yeah, it is. Everybody has the scars from that fight. Um, but that was the second priority, if you will, behind healthcare at the time and uh, really was a painful fight, but was a complicated law that really looked at how do you limit the amount of carbon pollution. And in that scheme, you could actually offset your pollution with a trading scheme. Uh, and that is relevant to what came out of the Supreme Court case, which I'll touch on later. So First step, usually try to go to expand the authority that the federal government has so that there are more tools on the table for the federal government to approach this really sweeping issue of climate change. Next, it's what are the regulatory authorities that exist? Where do you have options now uh, through the agencies and departments um, that are part of the federal government to go after this issue? And President Biden took a incredibly broad whole of government approach from day one uh, to look at every single agency. President Obama took a slightly different view. At that time, we were looking at different science, honestly, and the concept of net zero and pretty much leveling our emissions, getting to the point where we're at the zero emissions by mid-century was not what we were focused at. We were focused at a different target. And there was a lot more conversation around a carbon tax or some specific silver bullet that was going to solve this problem of a policy. And the Obama administration went forward with the Clean Power Plan. And this was that special um, portion of the Clean Air Act, 111D, that they tried to set regulations on existing power plants that would require states to set plans in place to slowly have the power plants reduce their emissions over time. The part of it that was most controversial then and came up in the court case more recently was how they got to those emission reductions. And they, they, we refer to it as the best system of emission reductions. And that best system requires looking at the technology that's available, the economic impact of what you're asking the power plants to do, and the effectiveness of what the proposal is uh, and what the regulation actually achieves. And the best system of emission reductions that EPA put forward in the Clean Power Plan actually allowed uh, power plants and power companies to take credit for emissions that were reduced as a result of energy efficiency in homes beyond the power plant. So it was controversial because looking at the impacts of behavior changes and transformation in the actual generation of where the uh, energy was coming from beyond the actual power plant itself. Uh, and that was the way they were trying to look at the system holistically and see what are all the various ways that we can ensure we are using 
less electricity, using less energy to bring down those emissions, in addition to using more cleaner sources such as wind and solar. So it really was trying to take a holistic approach to look at the system and give the power plants um, a lot of different options into how they would actually achieve the targets. Let me read back kind of the basic story to you here, just to make sure that we're sort of following the flow of this. So when President Obama came into office, he put forward what was essentially a cap and trade bill. The idea is we're going to, we're going to let economics solve this problem. We're going to put a price on carbon and we're going to create a market for it here. And we're going to say, hey, look, what the market's really good at doing is finding efficient, cost-effective solutions. So if the most cost-effective thing to do in, in your neck of the woods is to reduce the amount of power you're getting from coal, you'll do that. If the most effective thing to do is to be more energy efficient through the light bulbs you have installed. You'll do that. We're going to put a price on it, let you figure out the best way to get there, and we'll we'll let you trade how much carbon you're allowed to emit, and that's that's going to be a market solution. At the time, it, it, it could pass in the House, couldn't pass in the Senate, and it died. Later in President Obama's administration, they came back at it and they said, all right, look, we can't do this through Congress, through the, through the national legislature. We can't pass a new law. But what we can do is kind of a similar idea through regulation, through existing law that we already have under the Clean Air Act and this particular section, 111D. We can go back in and say, it's not quite a cap and trade scheme. It's not quite setting up a market, but we're still going to let states find the most efficient way possible for them. We're going to give them flexibility to try to lower the amount of carbon they put out. And that's where we sort of pick up the story. So I guess that's a two-part question for you. One, (laughs) is my read back of that story right? And number two, what happened next? Yes, your read back is perfect. That's exactly the way to think about how these uh, steps played out. And it is significant for what the um, court was looking at in terms of the clean power plan. So what happened next uh, was President Trump. President Trump, I remember that. President guy. Trump, he came into power and uh, really was not into environmental protection. I think that's a safe way to describe it. Um, immediately pulled us out of the Paris Agreement. So took a very unpopular step leaving the United States as the only country that was not a party to that uh, agreement, global agreement to reduce emissions. Um, But then it sort of left the EPA and Administrator Wheeler in a um, tough spot to figure out how they were going to address this uh, particular uh, clean power plan. Oh, but I forgot. The twist that happened even before this was... Was it the butler? (laughs) In the dining room? No, it was Supreme Court Justice Scalia, who just... (laughs) Yes, he's he's always the culprit. It was always (laughs) Scalia. (laughs) Just weeks, weeks uh, before his really sudden uh, death, he put a stay on the clean power plan and said this regulation that... President Obama had just put into place, he 
thought of it as so onerous in terms of the impact on uh, the power sector that he put a stay in place that immediately halted. So even before President Trump came in, uh, there was a there was a stay in place on the clean power plan, which meant it never went into effect. Then Trump came in. They made very clear the Trump administration was not going to continue with this regulation. They were going to do their own. So they didn't say they were going to do nothing. They didn't uh, zero it out in a certain effect. They did their own version, which was confined very tightly to inside the um, inside the fence line, as we were just talking about. And the actual emission levels were laughably uh, high. So it was not going to have any real impact on our overall emissions as a country and really would leave business as usual as the um, case that we were looking at in terms of climate emissions. So that was never anything that President Biden was going to leave on books. Uh, he came in to office and really made climate a core part of his entire campaign. So day one, he re uh, uh, announces that the United States is going to be a party of the Paris Agreement again, and that he is going to take a whole of government approach to addressing climate change, puts together a climate task force, creates the first ever climate policy office, and then puts Gina McCarthy, who was the green queen machine from EPA, who did the original clean power plan. She became the first ever director of the White House Climate Policy Office. Uh, and really said, okay, go at this every single uh, authority that we can that can help us to reduce emissions. I want this government looking at it from that perspective. And as part of that overall whole of government approach, we are going to redo 111D and the regulation uh, that the Trump administration put in place. So that's where we found ourselves uh, when several Republican attorneys general had decided the day after President Obama put the clean power plan in place, they sued. That lawsuit was on ice, essentially, during the entire Trump administration. And then when President Biden came into power, they decided once again to continue with their lawsuit, uh, which is very interesting given the fact that the Supreme Court even chose to take this case. But, but let me just stop before I get into that whole piece. It's a perfect place to leave off because I think we've gotten a pretty good overview of the basic story here. We've had almost five decades of bipartisan regulation and law in this country, law that enables the executive branch to undertake regulation of what we put into the air. And it's been one of the most successful laws, one of the most successful environmental measures, and one of the most successful sets of regulation we've ever had on anything it's successfully taken smog out of the air and made sure we're not breathing in a lot of soot. Seems like a good thing. And as we've had a growing awareness of the threat of carbon emissions, we've understandably wanted to apply it to the threat of global warming. And I think you've given a, a, a very good synopsis here of how we went from an attempt to pass a new law to an attempt to achieve the same thing through existing 
Clean Air Act regulation to the Trump administration's curveball to where and how we landed in the Supreme Court. So what happened? What was at issue in this West Virginia versus EPA case? And what was the ruling? So the Republicans, uh, Republican attorney general that brought this case to the Supreme Court were uh, basically stating that there was enormous economic uh, harm as a result of this regulation, that it was not possible for them to have the uh, consistency and reliability of power if they were to go forward with this regulation. Now, remember, Scalia put the stay in place, so the regulation never went into effect. Then you had the Trump administration that redid their regulation. And then what happened is President Biden came in and said, no, no, we're going to redo our regulation again. So we're going to do our own. So in that series of events, the Supreme Court said that we went back to the Clean Power Plan being the regulation that was on the books, despite the fact that it never went into place and EPA was not implementing it and said they were going to do their own. So many lawyers and experts of the Supreme Court were very surprised that they agreed to take this case in the first place. It would seem kind of moot, right? Exactly. There is a whole debate in the case about this issue of moot, mootness, because it never went into effect. So if the regulation never went into effect, then what harm can it cause? However, the justices argued or the majority argued in the case that there was significant economic harm just by the existence of the regulation on the books. Even if it was going to be redone, no one could guarantee that EPA was actually going to redo this regulation. So they felt there was sufficient standing by the Republican attorneys general for bringing this case forward, given the undue economic harm by editorial comment from the regulation that was never implemented. So Look, I'm going to editorialize as... with you. No, I'm going <laughs> to, I try very hard on this show as our regular listeners know to play it down the middle. And this is a show where we invite people with all kinds of different ideological perspectives to lay out their thinking and their scholarship. And we welcome that because that's the whole idea is to hear ideas right. that you don't always necessarily pre-agree with. All that being said, your whole laying out of how the Supreme Court decided to pick this fight reminds me of, I used to play flag football in Washington, D.C. And at one point, my team got into a little bit of a scuffle with the other team. This guy ran up from the other team, looked around, looked at the tallest, biggest person on the team, the second tallest, biggest person on the team. His gaze passed from person to person until it settled on the smallest person on our team. And he said, hey. Do you want to fight? And that's pretty much what the Supreme Court seems to have done here. They seem to have said, you know, look, I'm going to pick out the easiest fight that I can find in order to make a point. This does sound like a case of judicial activism. I'm done editorializing. Back to your story, Christy. So, So in essence, what the court did here was they said, no, it is impermissible for you to regulate here absent new law coming from Congress, that that the existing authority that you were granted under the Clean Air Act 50 years ago is not enough. You can't 
create this clean power plan or any similar set of regulations without new authorization from Congress. And they really zeroed in on the generation transformation, the generation, the energy generation, where it was coming from. Mm. The fact that the clean power plan was really pushing to cleaner sources and that that generation transition was well beyond EPA's authority, that it never, their argument was, the majority's argument was, it would never have been comprehensible that Congress solely put the authority in the hands of the Environmental Protection Agency to transition our energy system from one form of generation to the other. That seems well beyond congressional intent at the time that the Clean Air Act was written and came into law. And then they cited because Congress had tried previously on multiple occasions to move forward with a very similar cap and trade scheme, that was proof that in of itself, the fact that Congress tried and failed was proof that there was not congressional intent for EPA to have the authority to set up a scheme that was similar to a cap and trade uh, system. Oh, that's so, interesting. That's interesting. The very fact that, boy, this is making me feel worse and worse about, about my 2009 as a congressional staffer, when which was dominated <laughs> largely by cap and trade. So that effort sort of hoisted the Obama administration on its own petard. Absolutely. But according to the majority in this Supreme Court. And then they did something that has lasting ramifications. Uh, and this was from Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion here. They brought up this doctrine that really hadn't been cited in case law uh, before, the major questions doctrine, which is the idea of how much authority does the federal government have to interpret major questions and look at their authority in ways that can address those major questions. And there's just one sentence in there that says, this is a major questions case. So it is putting out there for all lower courts to say, there is now a doctrine that the Supreme Court is acknowledging that we are gonna fight over what is a major question. And in this case, they are definitely saying that climate change and how to address climate change is a major question and therefore, there needs to be new authority because that never could have been one of the questions that Congress wanted the agency to address back in the day that the statute was actually created. You know, it was awfully cute when Potter Stewart said he couldn't define pornography, but he knew it when he saw it. The idea that a judicial standard was in the eye of the beholder. It's a little less cute when the Supreme Court seems to be saying there is a standard here and we'll decide what it is and when it applies. And so can the lower courts and who knows. So let, that kind of turns me to my next question, which is, OK, just how limiting is this ruling? Because that's what all of the speculation in the popular press has been about. And as I said at the top of the show, there's been certainly what sounds like some hyperbole that this is the end of environmental regulation in America. And then there's been pushback saying, no, not really. It's, it, it's maybe not that bad. So given this open question of what a major issue may or may not be, mm -hmm. what, can, what can we say about what the limits are now and what the federal government and the EPA still can and can't do? 
think of the sentence that identifies the major questions case as kind of like the sword of Damocles, because it's out there. We have no idea what that's going to lead to. But then the rest of the ruling and the rest of the argument that Chief Justice Roberts laid out for us was far more narrow in its critique of EPA's authority. So it is definitely true that EPA has a lot of authority to go forward and regulate pollution. And even based on how they crafted their argument saying it was not the right best system of emission reductions, but there are other ways that they could do this, looking at the economics and looking at um, what impact they're gonna have in the technology that is out there, and they reference that. They also, the majority also references the other areas where they support EPA has the authority to go forward and regulate specific pollutants. So all of that is still on the books. And I think the, the general consensus that most of the environmental lawyers are coming to is that this became a inside ver the fence line versus an outside the fence line ruling. So EPA could still move forward with a regulation of carbon dioxide that focuses on the power plant itself and the source of the generation of the power. And that's significant because technology is changing and there are lots of uh, advancements in carbon capture and storage and other technology that could really, really have an impact on emission reduction. So EPA can, and we certainly uh, will argue and push for EPA to go forward with a new 111D rule. Uh, we even heard um, Shelley Moore Capito, Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, who said on the record to reporters, EPA still has the ability to regulate. They just can't do the system that they tried to do previously. Mm. So I, I think that is the new um, guardrails that EPA is working within. But again, the lawyers are going to have to look at this from every angle and you still have the major questions doctrine out there. So at what point are you crossing out of what the justices would consider as your sound <laughs> legal authority into this gray area of major questions? And, and that is going to be um, a debate that I think is obviously going to go on for for quite some time. And this is where you had Justice Kagan really come out with a scathing dissent where she said that the justices have put themselves in charge of making climate policy as a result of this decision. Because just as you described with the pornography example, the justices themselves are gonna be in the position of deeming something a major question or not, and really hanging that whole issue over the federal government, well beyond the environment, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, every other agency is going to have to think about, am I going too far? Is this too transformational? Am I um, making too much change and trying to define that for themselves? And in my experience in the federal government, that's never good. It does sound like, just to read back what you just gave us, it does sound like that's sort of the bad news nugget here is no one ever liked the sentence. All right, 
the lawyers are going to have to really take a close look at this. That's that's just not good <laughs> unless you bill by the hour and you're a lawyer. So I guess that is sort of the stone cold bummer of, of this, that there is an introduction of a, a ton of potential for future litigation and a ton of potential uncertainty with the ultimate redress being, we could think we're on firm ground, but maybe we're not. And a future Supreme Court could say, eh, that's a major question. No. So try again. Try again. Try again. Try so again. that's the bad news. Now, before we lose all of our listeners um, and, and, and send them off to, you know, drink something, which if you're in the car, don't do that. <laughs> I, let's, let's maybe focus on, on some of the good news. First of all, you cited Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, West Virginia, famously a coal state. Um, you know, so her, her characterization here is potentially significant. Reaching back, and notwithstanding my PTSD about my congressional experience on cap and trade, do you see any realistic path forward for any carbon mitigation steps coming out of Congress in the next few years? Is, is there something that Congress could get done here? I spend the vast majority of my time right now really focused on the investments that we need Congress to make in order to shoulder some of the burden for this transition. And Congress has proven that one of the things it can do, even in this very divided time that we're living through, is spend money. So we still think there is a chance that uh, the reconciliation package that was passed through the House uh, last year could move forward. It would be much narrower but could still include hundreds of billions. So in the area of 300 billion in tax credits for clean energy. And those tax credits really would allow us to supercharge the amount of wind and solar that we could get onto the grid in this decade, which we know is so important according to the science. So, And, that, and that's on top of some of the positive steps in the infrastructure bill, which is already absolutely. in place. That's right. That's right. So transmission, uh, you know, electric vehicle charging infrastructure, all of that was also in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that is now law. So if you combine those two, you really would have a major investment in climate action. And it also, with those uh, tax credits and investments on the books, it changes the economics of what's possible to get done through regulation because it's cheaper for those regulations to then be put in place. So there's all kinds of dividends that get paid if those investments are able to get over the finish line. And really we will know the answer to that in the next couple of weeks. Beyond that, and those investments will not be enough. I am the first to say that we are going to need Congress to continue to act. Uh, it is going to take a minute, I would say, for everyone to regroup and figure out where is the overlap for Republicans and Democrats in trying to get climate mitigation measures over the finish line? Because there just has not been anything of real significance on the Republican side uh, that would make a difference. They do focus on resilience and adaptation, but anything that would really impact the amount of emissions uh, that we put out into the world is kind of where the Republican proposals all fall short. So we have this brief window here that we're very hopeful uh, that Chuck Schumer and Leader Schumer can bring his caucus together 
around climate investment because they think it might be some time before we have that opportunity again. And just to, I, I hope I'm not overstretching by trying to stay on the good news theme, but one point that has been made in many places, including on this show in an episode we did with one of your Center for American Progress colleagues last year, one of the points that has been made is that we don't have to focus exclusively on policymaking at the federal level. There's actually a tremendous amount of progress that's happening at the state level. And so for people who are looking to mitigate the bummer that they just heard at the federal level, there is some progress that is happening in terms of spending through Congress that may continue to happen. And there also, there is progress happening at the state level and it's quite meaningful. That's true. I definitely agree that the states can go farther, uh, but they can only go so far because there are only so many of them. And a lot of our energy issues are uh, interstate. We have a grid, a national grid. So it's, um, yes, we need to do as much as we can at the state level. I think where we have the best opportunity going forward is the bipartisan infrastructure funding that is already passed into law. That is a $1.2 trillion, significant amount of funding that if you look at how it is spent and where it is spent and in when it's appropriate, leverage private dollars with those public dollars, you could have a significant impact on trans um, transmission, which is incredibly important, offshore wind, there's lots of opportunity there. So yes, that's the states, that's definitely working with the states, uh, transportation dollars that uh, require you now to disclose greenhouse gas emissions. Those are huge opportunities with the states that are, are willing to do it and you can definitely make progress. But a lot of the states, the blue states, have already set 100% clean targets. They are moving with their own set of regulations through their state legislature when they can, sorry, state laws, not regulations. Um, so I, I'm less optimistic that the states are going to save us here the way they did in the Trump administration, because really that was a counterbalance to what we saw at the federal level. I think we're going to need the states and, so the states and the private sector, the financial markets, uh, the international deals that we can potentially do, like the clean steel deal, that really kind of boost the, the clean energy production that we have or the clean products that are available to the economies that are focused on uh, really reducing emissions. So I, I think the states play a role in that, but then uh, there's a lot more that's going to have to come along. And you alluded a moment ago to the private sector, and that is another area where I don't want to over tilt on this, but we have seen some significant progress in the last five to 10 years, initiatives coming from the financial sector, a lot more support for clean tech development, a lot more uh, vehicles for investment um, in, in uh kind of clean portfolios, green portfolios, and of course, initiatives uh, from corporations to try to limit their own emissions um, and have more support for renewables. That clearly seems to be part of the, the picture for the future that you're laying out as well. Yes. And we have right now, uh, I think the comment period just ended for the SEC's rule that looks at asking uh, 
companies to disclose their emissions across several different scopes. We call it scope one, two, and three, scope three being their downstream emissions. Uh, and that is creating a new round of pushback, as you can imagine, even it's just about disclosing, it's not changing behavior, but uh, companies don't necessarily want to be forced to say how much their carbon footprint is and how much they're contributing to this. They don't want to be forced to disclose the information, yet they're happy to make non-binding long-term commitments that really give them a boost with customers and a boost with whoever um, they're trying to woo. Uh, so that is going to be a tension that we see over the coming years. These extraordinary uh, large corporations that have made huge net zero commitments. How do they plan to get there? Are they really planning together? And then through the financial markets, it, what are what is the information that can be disclosed so that at least the public is aware of uh, what's happening in the private sector and how it's contributing to the problem? So putting all of those factors together, the private sector, the state level, the federal government, inclusive of both agencies and congressional action, what does the future of carbon emission in America look like, at least based on what we know today? Sadly, if you add all of that up, if we don't get the reconciliation package with the 300 plus billion of investments, it does not get us to the target that we have for 2030, our 50 to 52% reduction below 2005 levels. We've looked at lots and lots of models. Um, so that near-term goal may be coming farther and farther out of reach. Uh, and then the question is how much can we do given that timeline, that time frame, and can we make sure that the 2050 goal is still in reach, even if we don't beat the mark on 2030. Um, I, for one, believe that we have to start addressing that as a reality and acknowledging the impacts of climate change and really have a strong resilience and adaptation place uh, plan in place because we know the communities that are gonna suffer the most as a result of extreme weather. Um, but that's, that's tough, it's tough to reconcile the science with the actions we're taking and feel like we're going to be on a path to actually slowing climate change. Would you say then kind of in wrapping up that compared to where you were maybe a couple of years ago, you're more optimistic or more pessimistic about the path we're on than you were then? I'm definitely more pessimistic. There was a lot of opportunity uh, a lot of focus on what was possible coming out of the Trump years into the uh, Biden administration, but the polarization across this country, the idea that we can come together to solve really big problems, uh, it's not looking good. And so I, I hate to be the, the Debbie Downer. That's not my personality. And as a climate change advocate, I have to get to the place where I like face my grief, but hold a vision of the future. Um, but I think we're at a moment where we're going to have to reset and uh, really paint a new vision of what that future is. Well, I don't enjoy the Debbie Downer aspect of this kind of show either, because I like great ideas that lead us to a better place in America. 
but sometimes just giving people the plain unvarnished truth is the best thing you can do. And maybe that's where we've landed when it comes to the future of emissions and carbon and global warming. Well, Christy Goldfuss, thank you so much for walking us through this. Maybe not the most hopeful note, but a very realistic and a very, very important. Thank you so much for having me. And maybe this will be the moment that spur people to action so that we can have leaders that really are willing to go the distance to get us to a place where we can combat climate change.